Hello, friends. My name is Vicki, and I'm glad to be with you here at BSF. We are studying John 13 tonight. So let's pray, and we will dive into God's Word. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this time that you have given to us, those within the sound of my voice and myself, to look at your Word in John that you've preserved for us. We ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears that we might see and behold your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, soften our hearts that we might respond rightly, that we might love him more, that our lives might be shaped by him to live faithfully in this your world as we wait for the fullness of your plan in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've heard that it makes good financial sense to diversify our investments, to put a little money here, to put another money there and other places. And the idea is, of course, that you, that we aren't sure, we can't guarantee that any of those investments will do well uh, because uh, we, you and I, do not know the future. Our financial advisors don't know the future. But the idea behind diversification, if I understand it correctly, is that if you divvy up your wealth, that you won't lose everything. You'll have the best chance of success. And this kind of mindset might seep into other ways that we live as we think about uh, maybe a backup job opportunity that you've kind of had in your pot in the back of your mind in case the one you're in doesn't work out, uh, redundancy servers, uh, the pair of socks in your sock drawer that you really don't like, but you're just keeping them in case of that day when all the other pairs of socks are dirty, you know, just in case. These are the kind of plans that I think a lot of us as humans make because we don't know everything. And we know that sometimes bad or unexpected things can happen, and we want to minimize the damage if we can. We want to flourish in the ways that we can and think that diversification or having safety backup plans is the way to do it. And friends, this may be, in some cases, wise financial advice or practical approaches to some areas of life. And But John's gospel, as we've been studying it this year, suggests that diversification is a terrible and foolish way to approach spiritual things. Jesus is not one good option among other good options. He is exclusive. He is the only word, the only one who was with God in the beginning, who is God. And he is the only authorized son sent by the Father. He is exclusive. He is the good shepherd. He is the gate. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. And we will get into these next chapters and find out in here that he is the, the way to the Father. There is no other way. He is the Word, Jesus, who is from God, who is God, and who has come fully committed to dwell with those who receive Him. Jesus has come to give everlasting life to those who trust in Him. And to trust Jesus in the ways that that is John's gospel is painting it is not doesn't fit neatly in that, oh, let's diversify or have backup plans. Let's trust a little bit of that and a little bit of that. No, it is 
trusting that is a wholehearted trusting. And it's really important, friends, based on the picture that John's gospel has been painting for us. Jesus came to give everlasting life to those who trust Him, and the implication is because we're perishing without Him. We need it, and not just a little perishing, we're everlasting perishing apart from Jesus and His intervention. In John 13, we will find that Jesus teaches more that following Him is not a casual commitment, but He demands our whole and complete selves yielded to Him. While this feels risky to those of us who like diversification and backup plans, this is God's best plan, the Gospel of John suggests for us. So, as we look at tonight's passage I think that we can learn that Jesus shows himself supremely trustworthy. Jesus shows himself trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. And so trustworthy, we should give our whole lives to him. We should hold nothing back. Jesus loves us steadfastly. He knows what we cannot. He has been given everything by God the Father. And so while following Jesus may seem risky, Uh, and may mean and actually does mean that following Him, we will, by His grace and by His Spirit, need to be completely rewired in our values and priorities. What do we think is greatness? What do we think is loneliness? Uh, Jesus Himself proves trustworthy, and that is the path of true flourishing for us. So, just a little recap. We are now, as we have closed the chapter on John 12 and are entering John 13, we are entering a new section of John's gospel, the second half. Jesus has left his public ministry at the end of chapter 12, and now he is concentrating from now until the end of chapter 21, the end of John. He is serving his own. And he starts in this section with developing the faith of his beloved disciples in private. And so we'll be going into now his last hours with them before he is arrested and goes to the cross. He is laying a a strong and sure foundation for what will lay what lays ahead. And although they did not grasp it, Jesus knows the future, and he is communicating things to them that they might, uh, maybe not in the moment that they're with him, fully understand, but later he that they will be able to, by his Spirit, uh, understand what he's talking about. So tonight, we're going to be covering chapter 13 in the book of John. Get your Bibles open or turn them on if you don't have that already done. We're going to be in the first 30 verses. So we are going to cover that in an ambitious three divisions. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 is a frame that Jesus knows and loves. This is his private ministry, Jesus knows, Jesus loves. And we'll see verses 4 to 20, Jesus loves his disciples by serving and modeling service. And then in our third division, in 21 to 30, Jesus loves his disciples by anticipating his betrayal. So, Jesus knows and loves. Jesus loves his disciples by serving and modeling service. And Jesus loves his disciples by anticipating his betrayal. Okay, so let's get into our first division, these first three verses in chapter 13. 
where Jesus' private ministry, really, I suggest to you, the the whole rest of John's gospel is really could be understood as being framed uh, or prepared by these three verses. This, so let's just read them. Now, before the feast of the Passover, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and began taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Okay, so we we went a little bit ahead in verse 4. Uh, these first three verses are actually uh, jam-packed with rich theology, and uh, actually the, the sentences in the original Greek are, uh, it's very complex, Greek and, and kind of a shift from uh, has a shift in tone from what we precedes it and follows it, and so I suggest to you when we when we get into our next section uh, here in uh, not only this section in thirteen but also going on through the upper room discourse through Jesus' uh, betrayal and, and trial to his crucifixion and then his resurrection. When we get lost in the weeds, this is a good place to come back to these three verses and get our bearings. Similar to how we saw earlier, the prologue is a great place for us to come back to, and it still is. Uh, And also John's mission uh, or aim verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 31. Those are three places to come back. So in these three verses, it's really Jesus' private ministry is being framed for us. And I suggest there's three parts of this. The first part is Passover. And really, it's not stated overtly, explicitly, but that suggests Jesus is fulfilling. Uh, The second part, Jesus is knowing. And the third part, Jesus is loving. And so, the first part, the Passover, uh, which suggests that Jesus is fulfilling uh, the Passover anchors were pointed there in the first phrase in, in verse 1. It anchors this passage and the section in two ways. One, it's a literal setting, of course, suggesting that the meal that follows is a Passover Seder in our private room that uh, is related to what the other Gospels relate, and that's uh, in verse 2, that feast is referenced. And also, I suggest to you that the timing of the Passover is spiritually symbolic, that this is the feast that God had given to Israel to remember his great redemption of them. When he had heard their cries when they were enslaved in Egypt to the king Pharaoh, and he redeemed them and brought them out with great signs and wonders. Our God seems to delight in patterns. And so, at this point, in redemption history, the Exodus was the high point. It was the biggest celebration, foundational event of Israel. It showed God's grace and his compassion, his care for them. He rescued Israel, who was unable to rescue uh, herself. And at the right time, God brought them out. 
and there was a great physical deliverance. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. He gave them his law. He made a covenant with them, an everlasting covenant, uh, and became their king. And uh, or was ratified as their king as they as they covenanted with him, and so and yet as wonderful as the Exodus was, and it is rightly celebrated throughout the Old Testament and the New, uh, the Israel in the world was st- the Exodus from Egypt was not enough. It didn't accomplish God's great plan of redemption, which but it laid the pattern and the foundation. Israel in the world is still bound was still bound in spiritual slavery that uh, they were, death was reigning and people were still enslaved to sin. They were spiritually dead because they had rebelled against God. Our ancestors, our first parents, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, rebelled against God's good authority and so spiritually died that day as God uh, as God declared and had told us would happen in, in Genesis 2. And so, uh, as again, as wonderful as the Exodus was, and that Passover, the celebration of what God had done, it pointed to the greater Exodus that was coming in the Lord Jesus Christ, and would be uh, then Exodus would be seen in contrast with the deliverance in Jesus, the true Moses. Uh, that. Exodus is actually the smaller and tinier deliverance where Jesus fulfills all of that. And so, Jesus, the true Moses, as God's son, leads people uh, by greater, greater deliverance from everything that has oppressed us since the beginning, sin and death and corruption, because he is, John the Baptist declared in John 1, 29, Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so here we are at the Passover. We're anticipating the time that the Passover lamb, Jesus, would be slain for that sacrifice. Uh, and so I want to, there is an interesting echo, and I haven't explored it, but uh, water was very significant in the Exodus, and water is significant in what happens in the washing of disciples' feet. So, I still, that's interesting to ponder. I, I, I don't have a good answer for that, but it's, it's very uh, evocative. So, that was the Passover, suggests that Jesus is fulfilling. This is the right time and place. Jesus is fulfilling. And the second part, Jesus knew. We have uh, the two Greek words for that are translated uh, rightly here as knew in, uh, you know, K-N-O-W or K-N-E-W, no, or um, overtly appear, there's 10 times in chapter 13, and they're twice here in verses 1 and 3. And there are specific things that are named that Jesus knew. And so, uh, he knew in verse 1 that this was his hour. That was not, uh, as the context suggests, a literal 60 minutes, but rather that his hour, as he's been saying throughout his hour has not come, now his hour has come. His hour is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, the time when he would be and God would be glorified. And verse 31 anticipates that, and we're going to be going there next week. 
In verse uh, 1, it also says uh, that Jesus knew that he would leave, he was leaving this world and going to his Father. So we can infer from that, Jesus not only knew the hour and he knew what was happening, but he knew his identity, as we've been seeing throughout John, is in verse 3, suggests that he was and is the promised anointed Messiah Son in perfect relationship to God the Father. We can infer that Jesus knew his purpose. He was sent by the Father to serve and gather the ones who were chosen, uh, verse 18. And he knew that he had all authority given to him. Uh, that's in verse 3, I believe. And uh, that all the Father had given all things into his hands. And where he had come from, it implied, of course, it's not stated overtly, but uh, verse 2 suggests uh, that the devil is giving Judas things that, that Judas knows. Judas knows probably what he's going to do, or at least it's in his heart. And where Jesus' plans are informed by God the Father and Jesus knows, we see this contrast between uh, Jesus and Judas uh, sadly, and so uh, it, it does imply that Jesus' knowledge was limited, uh, was not limited, that he knew Jesus' heart, and I'm sorry, Jesus' knowledge of Judas is thorough, that he knew Jesus' heart, Judas's heart, I keep saying that, I'm so sorry, um, and he knew the manner that Judas would betray him. He knew the fullness of the consequences, and yet, even though all things had been given into his hands, meaning that he could have called legions of angels to stop Judas, that Jesus is committed to the Father's plan of going to the cross. And in contrast to the disciples, that it's it's throughout these next uh, our next two divisions, the disciples clearly do not know. They are clueless. And uh, this is not something Jesus chides them for. He doesn't expect that they would know. Isn't that encouraging, my friends, that the success of God's plans rest with Jesus not with us, not with our knowledge of the plan. It's Jesus who knows. Jesus is trustworthy. We should trust him. So, and then the, the, another emphasis is, especially at the, at the end of verse one, is that Jesus loved. So, love is actually the only uh, finite verb in, or it's the emphatic verb in verse one. He loved to th- them to the end. Or uh, that could be translated, he loved them unto completeness. He loved them uh, unto perfection. And the the Greek phrase is a very wonderfully ambiguous phrase here, which I suggest to you is meant in all those senses that Jesus' love persists for his own until the end, until the fullness, until the completion, that it hasn't reached an end where Jesus run his has love is run out. Um, Jesus' love proceeds and surpasses us. He serves because he knows that it's the Father's will. So Jesus knows, and yet his ministry to us and for us also overflows from his love. His knowledge and his love are interwoven together, not set one against each other. And Jesus' love frames everything here. 
uh, in John 13, up until I suggest to you John 21, and actually beyond, as he describes, uh, he talks about what is coming in the future in John 14.3, for example, that he's coming back for his own. Uh, We have ideas about what love and loving is in our culture, and some probably, some of those ideas probably align with what is depicted as love, what is meant here in John's gospel, and some ideas that we have about love probably do not line up with what uh, John's gospel holds up and means by the word love. And so, uh, what is we might be wondering, what is love in John's gospel? I suggest to you this frame encourages us to look at what Jesus says and does, and that in the commands that we will get uh, this next week when we finish chapter 13 and beyond of Jesus wants us to be loving. Those of us who follow Jesus, he commands us to love. What does he mean by that? Uh, We need to look here and interpret that based on not our cultural knowledge, but what is in the scriptures. Uh, from especially chapter 13, but uh, also extending all the way to chapter one, 21 in this section. So, uh, a principle I think that we can look, uh, that we can learn from this is that Jesus alone offers the security we long for. Jesus alone offers the security we long for. Um, and I wonder, uh, where are you feeling insecure? Where is your world uh, possibly in peril of shaking or tumbling? And uh, how do you respond to the reality that the future of your life and mine rests in the hands of this one, the Word, Jesus, who knows all things? And who loves? He loves his own, and far and most of us are. We don't deserve that love. It's not anything in our merit. He has just decided to set his love on us. It's not because we're doing always doing the right things, or we uh, know what the things that we probably uh, that we maybe even should know. Uh, but how does it impact your heart that Jesus knows everything and that Jesus loves you? Uh, if you are in Christ, um, are you willing to let Jesus shape and correct your perceptions of what is loving and kind? Uh, because that is the security that we are called to be rooted in, his knowledge and his love. Jesus alone offers the security we long for, and Jesus is trustworthy. Uh, he, we should give our whole lives to him and hold nothing back. Okay, let's go to our second division which is probably the most famous part or the most well-known part of this section that we're in, where Jesus loves his disciples by serving and modeling service. And this has two sections, uh, verse 4 through the first part of 12, where Jesus washes feet and dialogues with Peter about washing feet, and or about washing, I guess. And then the second part is, verses 12b, the second half of 12, through the end of 20. And that's Jesus' that's Jesus' interpretation. He's interpreting. So, he has actions in the first part, and then he interprets those actions in the second part. So, let's uh, go ahead and look at Jesus' actions in verses 4 through 12a. And uh, so, 
picking up the subject in verse 3, Jesus uh, rose from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, go- who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Okay, so uh, we see there his actions in a very tangible way. Jesus showed his love for them. He served them. Um, and in that time, bathing was probably a lot less frequent than what you and I and probably most people in in our modern culture experience. And feet were a lot more exposed than certainly they are for uh, now in the areas of the world that or that I live in, for sure, um, where normally we wear shoes. And feet were frequently then, because they were more exposed, they were more dirty. And the way that they ate in first century uh, Palestine was most of the time Roman, that there was a table that looked kind of like a U, so a three-sided table, and there were uh, pillows and mats along the outside. And people would come, there weren't chairs at this table, the table was low, but they would come and recline. And so that, if you think about that, if you're having a meal with your family or with your friends and your neighbors, the, a low table like that, your face is a lot closer to other people's feet and actually probably your feet also uh, than we're certainly used to experience or I'm used to experiencing here in the West. Uh, the narrator doesn't give us a reason Do you notice that of why Jesus got up or when, or if the servants hadn't done their job? There are other gospel accounts that maybe speak to that, but here John has not uh, given, John's narrator does not give us background. Instead, uh, he just said very plainly that he, that he did that. And the language, especially in verse four, is evocative of, I suggest to you, uh, what Jesus did rising from his place of honor in heaven where he was in glory with his father, that he set aside his heavenly uh, royal garments and that he condescended to be born as a human and not just a human, but a servant, one who would serve. And actually the word that's translated here uh, in the ESV, where I'm using towel, is also could be used and is used in in uh, the first century writings to say, to describe the cloth that was used to cover nakedness on a crucifixion. So that's a it's del, uh, 
actually wonderfully evocative in this early section that he is putting aside his uh, his garments and getting up and doing work as a servant and even suggesting and anticipating his ultimate humiliation on the cross and uh, with that very scant covering. Um, and so, that and that he that was how he was girded up. Okay, so Peter uh, makes Peter speaks perhaps as the disciples' representative, and he's probably I suggest to you as a friend of mine noted, um, Peter and Judas seem to be juxtaposed in ways that uh, John seems to be wanting us to compare and contrast them. So I encourage you to do that. Notice that Judas doesn't say anything here, despite Jesus making several remarks here, uh, and then going into the next section about uh, the betrayal that is coming. But Peter makes three statements. Uh, they're all either mistaken or uninformed, and um, and yet Jesus is very kind. He corrects Peter, but he doesn't shame him. Jesus' correction is a blessing. When we are learning from Jesus, we're going to get things wrong, and He's going to correct us. Do you? Does your heart Invite that. Does mine? Uh, disciples of Jesus should see Jesus' correction as a blessing. So he protests. He's first. It seems like in verse six he's uncomfortable. Oh, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then the second protest. Uh, maybe uh, you shall never wash my feet. And maybe there's there's a mixed a lot of mixed things in there. The sense that Peter does believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the anointed Messiah, the promised one who's coming. And Peter wants to see Jesus exalted, not humbled. And then Jesus reply uh, with re- replies with a, with a choice. Do you see that? If I do not wash you, you have no share in me. In essence, that's saying, Peter, if you do not receive my ministry, of which this foot washing is a mere token then you are guilty of rejecting my person and you cannot be my disciple. And so Peter then, which we have to love him, he's so, he doesn't languish in his errors. He makes a bout face and he goes the complete other direction, right? He's so enthusiastic. He wants to be with Jesus. He loves Jesus. That seems very clear. And Peter wants Jesus to wash all of him. And yet, Jesus again corrects him and kindly that uh, only feet need only feet need bathing for those who are clean. And here it seems that Jesus is Jesus doesn't explain what he's saying um, exactly or interpret this in plain language, but it seems that Jesus is using clean here as a metaphor for spiritual purity because we can see here in verse eleven the one who was to betray him is is implied to be not clean or unclean, and uh, it does it seems that he's describing the reality of how God counts trusting in Jesus as sufficient for our cleansing. And so, too, Jesus' disciples, uh, except that one, the one who would betray Judas, had believed on Jesus, and thus before God, they had been counted spiritually clean or righteous through faith. Uh, I thought about Romans 3, especially verses 25 and 26, about God's economy and how even though this was before Jesus' crucifixion, that uh, the sins of Peter and the sins of the other disciples that had estranged 
them from God and that had uh, the, where they were spiritually dead, that God in his economy was so kind to count Jesus' future death on the cross unto their uh, unto their uh, their salvation and uh, using that hope uh, the cleanness as clean as words for for righteousness um, that they were righteous by their faith uh, by grace through faith um, in Christ alone and so uh, that it suggests that uh, you know this this beautiful imagery is that uh, that idea that uh, once we have a bath, once we trust in Jesus, we are clean, even though uh, in our sins are we're in God's economy that He uh, placed our sins on His perfect Son Jesus on the cross, and that Jesus' death paid the price for those sins, and now we can stand before God without sin and with. Uh, not just without sin, but with the righteousness of Christ, with His faithfulness, hidden in His faithfulness. And uh, the idea that uh, the one who has a bath needs only feet washing, this symbolizes the idea that there is a need for Christians, those who trust in Christ, to have ongoing uh, repentance and cleansing because uh, we have been cleansed from the penalty of sin, but not yet from the presence of sin. And so, uh, when we do sin, as we as we do, that we are called, expected, that we're going to turn, we're not going to stay hard-heartedly in that sin and rebellion, but rather evidence of our spiritually being made new in Christ is that we will hear the convicting voice, that we will turn and be corrected and repent and that we will put off the sins that the rebellion that we've had and so that uh and and we will then be freed for having fellowship with Jesus and bearing fruit with him okay um and then in the second section <clears throat> we see in 12b to 20 Jesus uh after he does this very physical thing uh interprets the significance and uh, of this action, and he by saying, "Do you understand what I have done to you?" <clears throat> we know the answer to that was probably at the time, uh, no, since not much had changed since verse seven, right? Um, when, he, when Jesus said, uh, "What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand." And so, this was an object lesson showing what God was lovingly doing doing for them, uh, there was something larger than just the foot washing. The foot washing was real, and yet this was not just foot washing. Jesus was setting a pattern in two kinds. First, his actions help us understand his mission, that Jesus, when he left heaven and put aside his royal garments and he put on servanthood, unto death on a cross to cleanse your sin and mine, and that he did rise from that uh, because he was perfectly righteous and the Father vindicated him, and he returned back to the table to be in glory and uh, with the Father and to await the time when the Lord will put all of his enemies under his feet. This is where we are in redemption history. We're waiting for that. Jesus is waiting too. And so, that was the first pattern. It shows Jesus rising up, serving, 
hinting toward his crucifixion with that, uh, the, the word for towel, and then coming back and sitting down. So that's a picture of what Jesus' mission and purpose uh, did during his earthly ministry. And yet his second, his actions and words, as he goes on to explain uh, in verses 13 to 15, establish a pattern that he intends for his disciples to take on themselves. That because they are his uh, students, that he calls them teacher and Lord, and and rightly so, that they must follow his pattern. That you cannot have a, if you're a servant, you you need to do what the what the your master is doing. Um, in God's economy, honor and glory is preceded always by humility, and that is hard for our brains to understand our minds to understand we don't that's not how we understand human uh, relationships and what human honor is is that first there's humility and service and then there's exaltation uh, and so becoming Jesus disciple requires a complete change in thinking and identity where we allow Jesus to unmask and correct our ideas of greatness and inferiority and his is uh, from our vantage an upside down kingdom? Of course, he pr- looks at our our world and sees our ba- our values uh, where we think that being we can just rise to the top uh, and be honored that that is not actually the true way that uh, that things work. Okay. Um, <clears throat> He, let's see here, I know I'm running out of time, so I, I just want to uh, figure out where I'm going. Okay, uh, just a few more points on this, and we'll get to the principle. Um, we can see here that uh, there is a unity with um, with Christ that he, in verse 20, that he calls us to live out. And so, he talks about uh, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So there is a unity as we, by His grace, obey Him and uh, imitate His mission. Uh, And who actually are we supposed to serve? Um, Who is the disciples calling to causing? Who is Jesus causing us to calling us to serve? Uh, In verse fourteen, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that also you should do, just as I have done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent me. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then he gives a caveat in 18 and 19. So, two quick things about this. One, uh, who is it that Jesus is calling his disciples to serve? Um, It seems that if we look ahead in verses 34 and 35, uh, which seem to be another... um, Another way of saying this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it seems that in this scenario, Jesus is calling causing, calling his disciples to love his other disciples, those who belong in the family of Christ and are called uh, by God's grace, the children of God, as we saw in the prologue, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and four, or, uh, 12 and 13. Um, now, this is not to deny that Jesus doesn't 
calls call disciples to go out and serve those outside of the family of Christ. But uh, the focus here is the community of Christ. And Jesus' ministry in these chapters, 13 to 21, is a private ministry. It's internal ministry to those who are belong to him. And uh, there's a promise of blessing. We can see that uh, there's the, the caveat in 18 and 19 that external obedience does not bring the blessing of unity with Christ um, for the one who is outside Christ. And uh, verse 19 in particular, however, is profound. So in 18, he's communicating to his disciples, again, that and more clearly, that he is going to be betrayed. He's going to do that, actually even state it more plainly in verse 21. But 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And so, what is the purpose of Jesus telling us what's going to happen? What's the purpose of prophecy? Here, in verse 19, it suggests Jesus is not saying these are predictions that you need to figure out and so that you can watch your newspaper and know exactly what's going on. But Jesus is telling them now so that when they see the prophecy fulfilled, they would grow firmer in their faith in Him. And He uses that that phrase of I am, the words that Jesus has used throughout John uh, to point to his deity there. Let's see, how was that translated here? That I am he, uh, in, in Greek, it, it, it actually is just that I am, and that I am, uh, but it's here faithfully translated, that is the sense of it, but there is that play on words, um, that, uh, and pointing again that Jesus is God, and he expects our faith in him to be solid and to grow. So, a principle I think that we can learn from this uh, middle division, trusting Jesus means pursuing his humility. Trusting Jesus means pursuing his humility. If you think about what would happen if uh, you were to try to change your handedness, if you were uh, right-handed and you try to become left-handed, or left-handed and try to become right-handed. I have tried to learn how to write with my left hand. I'm right-handed. And it is, it's really hard. (laughs) And I've, it it gets very frustrating and i'm i i slip up and i you know i go back to writing with my right hand um and so it would take a complete rewiring and that i suggest to you is what the kind of overhaul that jesus is calling us to his disciples to in this section pursuing his humility we are not naturally drawn to humility uh, or to serving others before ourselves or to loving others especially those whom Christ has brought into the family this is not the family that we choose this is a family that he gathers and brings together and there's always or there's often a lot more diversity and personality and and preference and culture than uh, than we we might uh, we might appreciate Um. And yet, God, Jesus is calling us to trust Him in this and to put off our old way of thinking and allow Him to completely rewire us um, for that. And I wonder, where has Jesus already made headway in changing your ideas about greatness and humility? How has He empowered you and given you a heart to serve others and 
in lowly and humble ways, and not for your own glory, but for His glory, for the benefit of His kingdom, that Jesus would be lifted up. And I wonder, where are areas, perhaps, that you are being held back, that you have wrong ideas about uh, what greatness is, that you are drawn uh, not to serve others in humility, but to want to be served and expect that, you know, you've worked hard and now it's time for for you to be served or you deserve that. Uh, would you invite Jesus into that space to correct you and to help you be rewired in those ways? Okay, uh, this last section, 21 to 30, we're not going to get to cover a lot, right? <laughs> um, Jesus loves his own by anticipating and cooperating with his betrayal. And so, in this section, that uh, he is having dinner with his disciples, and he is troubled in his spirit, and he testifies plainly, and he speaks in verse 21 about his upcoming betrayal. And uh, the disciples aren't sure about who in verse 22, and there's uh, Simon Peter tries to figure out who it is, and yet even though Jesus answers and he says, it is he, let's see, verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it, again, aware, Jesus knows, he knows the scriptures, and he knows what he needs to do to obey and for those to be fulfilled. And yet, even though it seems like he gives the morsel and gave it to, to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, it doesn't seem like Simon Peter or the beloved disciple understand what's going on. Uh, and I don't know if that was just hidden from them in a mysterious way, or they they somehow just missed it because uh, verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he, Jesus, had said this to him, Judas, when uh, Judas said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly um, after Satan had entered Judas, which is uh, chilling uh, and and um, so sad. And that after receiving the morsel of bread, he went immediately out and it was night. And that imagery again of night and darkness, uh, spiritual darkness and spiritual night. It was a, it's a, it, this is a, a hard place. But now Jesus is alone with his true followers. There are no betrayers, everyone. And Jesus knows Jesus knows and he loves all those 11 who are with him there, and he's going to invest in them. Uh, so, I uh, just want to share the principle, or a principle, I think we can learn from this last section. Honoring God means not swerving from his plan. Honoring God means not swerving from his plan. And Jesus is a perf- is the and one and only perfect example of this. The Father's plan for him was to die on the cross in complete humility and submission uh, that he would serve us in that way. And as a runner runs straight in a race focused on the goal and brings honor to their coaches and their team, Jesus ran straight and true by God's grace and power. Despite hardship, he could have turned aside. All authority had been given to him, and yet uh, he was steadfast. Jesus... Uh, honored God by not swerving from the Father's plan. Uh, now, this also applies to us, friends, uh, not because we are Jesus. We have swerved from God's plan. In fact, that is our plight. Our sin and rebellion dishonors God. And the gospel means, however, that God had compassion on us. 
and that he sent Jesus to do what we could not, to run straight and true and honor God's plan, God invites us to be hidden in Jesus. That's the gospel, that we would receive Jesus' straight path and righteousness by his grace through faith in Christ. And Jesus thus is God's plan for us. And honoring God in the places where we are means holding steadfastly on to Jesus. There is no turning back. There are no backup plans. Jesus is trustworthy, and we should give our whole lives to him and hold nothing back. Uh, How steadfast are you are maintaining the course of God's plan for you? You may not know all the details of what God has. In fact, you won't. You will not know uh, what tomorrow will bring um, in God's plans for you. But we do know this. God is calling everyone, inviting everyone to trust in Jesus. That is God's main plan. You can be confident that this is God's will. Uh, How have you trusted in Him? If not, will you do that? Will you talk with your BSF leader? Will you talk with your pastor? Um, Will you pray and ask Jesus to help you and to show you that that or whether he is worthy, whether he is trustworthy, and help uh, ask him to help you trust in him. Um, and if you have trust in Jesus, how are you cooperating with God to honor him by keeping your focus on Jesus? Are you do you have yourself in places and activities uh, where you will learn from him, receive his correction, and be with his people that you might serve them and learn humility in Christ? Are there places and situations in your life where you are tempted to compromise? You would like to swerve from God's plan here or there. Are there those places? If so, would you confess those? Would you ask the Lord to show them to you uh, and and to draw you back to Him, to forgive you, to correct your course, and to empower you to move forward in his promise. Jesus is trustworthy. We should give our whole lives to him and hold nothing back, put all of our eggs in that one basket. Uh, Jesus knows what is head. He knows. He loves. He will complete the good work begun in us. Will you thank him for his trustworthiness and that he is the only sure hope in life and flourishing? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for loving us so well, for knowing us completely and not turning away. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us back into relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And we pray that uh, your words, uh, your truth, your trustworthiness would resonate and rattle around in our hearts and our minds and our lives so that Jesus would be lifted up, so that your mission, that in the gospel of of Jesus would go forward, would uh, that we could participate in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, friends. Thanks for listening.